Asante came to TurboTax after graduating from culinary school and landing a job in the hottest kitchen in town. My hands are full all day, every day. I love it. Asante, as your TurboTax expert, I'll make your moves count, guaranteeing 100% accurate filing and your maximum refund. Sound good? Yes, expert! Switch to Intuit TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save in 2024. Wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash Merle. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The News with Dan. Today, we're going to be taking your calls on the Mint Mobile hotline. We're going to be following up on a couple stories that we talked about in weeks past, but I want to start with a look at Paramount. We did a whole story about Paramount Plus last year at the beginning of the summer when it looked like the financial situation wasn't very good. Well, now those financial concerns have rolled over to Paramount Global as a company, and it looks like the studio Paramount Pictures, as well as other assets, may be up for sale, may be merged, may be sold off. We don't quite know exactly what's going to happen, but let's try to get down to the bottom of it. One thing we do know is that Paramount Global, which is the parent company of Paramount Pictures, has lost 75% of its value over the last five years. Currently, the stock is trading around $12 a share after peaking at nearly $100 a share back in 2021, which was the peak of the speculative streaming market. In 2019, Sherry Redstone, who's the head of National Amusements, the parent company of Paramount Global, who owns the controlling interest in that company, re-merged CBS, which consisted of the CBS Network and CBS Studios, and Viacom, which consisted of assets like MTV and Paramount Pictures, to form a company called Viacom CBS, later renamed Paramount Global. And what this basically did was to undo a spinoff that was done back in 2005. Viacom split off into CBS and Viacom back then, and then were brought back together in a merger that left the combined company already in billions of dollars worth of debt. And from that beginning, there was a mandate to create a streaming service, and the executive put in charge of this was Bob Backish, the CEO of Viacom, who had been overseeing Paramount and the company's linear networks like MTV, Comedy Central, and BET. Now, according to reporting done by Bloomberg, despite massive deficits generated by streaming losses in recent years, Backish turned down two major offers that would have put money in Paramount Global's bank account. One of them was from David Nevins, the former head of Showtime, who offered to buy Showtime from Paramount Global with the backing of a private equity firm for $3 billion. But that deal was rejected because Paramount believed that Showtime was worth more than that. And instead, Showtime was folded into Paramount Plus. In addition, Bloomberg reported that Backish was encouraged to sell BET to a black owner and solicited bids, but turned down $2 billion, believing that the brand was worth worth at least $3 billion. And while I think it's admirable to say, hey, I know what the assets I have are worth, let's look at the position that Paramount Global is in. They started out already billions of dollars in debt. They racked up more billions of dollars in debt in streaming. And although those losses are narrowing, it is still putting debt on the company's books. And they're also a company that owns several linear networks on cable and broadcast television, which are rapidly declining in value. The financial situation at Paramount Global isn't the strongest in the company's history right now. Back in May, I mentioned that Warren 
Warren Buffett was a key paramount investor and that a reduction of his investment would spell even bigger trouble for the company. Well, news broke this past week that Buffett sold about 30 million shares of stock or about a third of his total investment in the company. And this is something that many people had expected Buffett to do last year. When you have a major investor like that selling off his shares, especially when shares are not particularly high, that doesn't show a whole lot of faith in the company. And it's this lack of faith and this downturn financially for the company that has opened up the avenue for people to approach them for possible mergers and acquisitions. Back in December 2023, media reports emerged that David Zaslav was considering a merger of Paramount Global and Warner Brothers Discovery. And while this is a very salacious story, you have to keep in mind that bringing Paramount Global into Warner Brothers Discovery would add billions of dollars of debt to Warner Brothers Discovery, while they're already trying to shed billions of dollars of debt in many ways, one of which we'll talk about later on in this show. Back in January, it was reported that David Ellison was looking to buy out Sherry Redstone's share in National Amusements, the parent company of Paramount Global, which would essentially give him and his private equity firm, Redbird Capital, control over Paramount. And Ellison's plan reportedly was to keep Paramount Pictures and merge it with Skydance, his movie studio, because he's a big fan of movies, including a lot of Paramount's movies, and then to sell off the other assets under the Paramount Global name. Also in late January, entertainment mogul Byron Allen submitted a $30 billion bid to buy Paramount Global with plans to sell the studio and its IP and maintain management over the company's linear networks like CBS and Paramount Plus. So the Byron Allen plan is actually kind of opposite David Ellison's plan, and he would keep what some would say are the most troubled assets in Paramount Global's inventory, the linear networks and the streaming service, getting rid of and stripping off for parts, basically the movie studio, the intellectual property and all of that stuff. This week, the Wall Street Journal reported that executives at Paramount Global and Comcast held discussions to talk about teaming up to bundle Paramount Plus and Peacock together, which would save both sides money on advertising and acquisition costs. And this is unlike the other deals in that it's not a merger or an acquisition necessarily, more like an alliance to bundle these two streaming services together. But I think what it does show is that Paramount really is open to any kind of solution right now to help to alleviate this financial burden and turn the company around. In a sign that many take to mean that a merger might be imminent, Paramount this week announced 800 layoffs, about 3% of the company's total staff. These layoffs include the complete dissolution of Nickelodeon's Noggin, a subscription service featuring kids programming that's going to be folded into Paramount+. And this is a common move for a company that is expecting to be acquired or trying to be acquired, to basically trim back the workforce, to cut back costs, to make it look as appealing as possible for a potential buyer. And we're going to know a lot more this upcoming week because Paramount has another earnings call. If the call contains bad financial news, that could accelerate this process because Paramount might want to find a buyer more quickly or a buyer might come in if the company is valued lower. If this call contains good news for Paramount Global, then we could see a delay in this process because the company could say, all right, listen, we're turning things around. We're going to stave off any kind of merger or acquisition for the next couple of years because we think that we can improve the financial outlook of this company and that we can get a higher selling price. But the one thing that seems to be evident is that it is very likely in the near-ish future, one to three years, that Paramount Global, Paramount Pictures, that company as we know it will change 
radically. The days are numbered for the Paramount and Paramount Global that we know today. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. And just looking at the people that we know have been in the market for Paramount, the end result of a merger acquisition would be vastly different. If Paramount went to David Zaslav and Warner Brothers Discovery, then we would essentially be down to four major Hollywood studios. We'd have Disney Fox, Paramount WB, Universal, and Sony. If Byron Allen's bid were to be accepted, I think this is the only scenario where the survival of Paramount Plus and the linear networks are practically guaranteed. In almost every other scenario, I think it's a major question as to whether Paramount Plus would even be around anymore. I think it would either be sold off or folded in to another company's streaming service. And then, of course, should Skydance acquire a controlling interest in Paramount Global, as I mentioned, I think we would see the survival of pretty much only the movie studio, and I think everything else would be up for grabs. Bloomberg's reporting quotes insiders as saying that the odds of a deal happening now are about 50-50, with some speculating that buyers may wait for the linear networks to decline in value over the next couple years, which would enable them to acquire Paramount for a lower price. And I think that the situation here with Paramount Global is also very Fluid. I think it does depend on things like these quarterly earnings calls, because when you look at it against some of its competitors, it's not a company like Disney, which has a whole theme park and alternate entertainment division to fall back on. It's not a company like Apple or Amazon, which has a complete retail tech giant side to fall back on. It's not a company like Sony, which largely avoided racking up the tens of billions of dollars in streaming debts. Paramount Global is a company that deals solely in entertainment, and they are basically a company that can consist of troubled assets right now, which means that their runway is a lot shorter than a lot of other companies. We knew that there were going to be casualties in these streaming wars, and it seems like the current iteration of Paramount is going to be one of those casualties. Now, whether that involves the studio going away or merging with another studio, we don't know yet right now. But the combination of the reckless spending with Paramount Plus and all the other streaming stuff for the company, as well as COVID and all of the instability that COVID introduced to the picture, have really given us what happens when something like streaming isn't the silver bullet that a company wanted it to be. Everybody in Hollywood basically went almost all in on streaming, and now, many years down the line, we may see the first time that, that silver bullet didn't hit the intended target, but instead curved back around and hit the people that shot it. So let's turn from Paramount to another studio that we were just talking about, Warner Brothers Discovery, and the ways that they have been trying to save money, and a very controversial way are these write-downs that they've been doing, which is basically to pull stuff off of their streaming service, or in the case of movies like Batgirl, just not release them at all, to write them down for tax purposes, basically take them as a loss, which means making them unavailable to pretty much anybody, unless you're able to sell it to another bidder. The latest victim appears to be the film Coyote vs. Acme, but there are now dueling stories circulating regarding Warner Brothers Discovery and just how serious they may have been about letting Coyote vs. Acme get bought by another bidder. 
Last November, it was reported that the movie, which is a live-action animation hybrid about Wile E. Coyote suing the company who provides him with his product, would be shelved by WB Discovery in order to write the movie down as a loss, a repeat of what was done with Batgirl and the animated sequel to Scoob, among other projects. After a public outcry and support from many high-profile Hollywood creatives, WB Discovery reportedly reversed course and decided to allow Coyote vs. Acme to hit the open market in hopes that it would be bought by another studio. Last week, The Wrap reported that Coyote vs. Acme's salvation was seemingly short-lived, which fanned outrage by painting WB Discovery as a studio that was never really serious about selling the film to begin with. According to the story, in part, quote, Netflix, Amazon, and Paramount screened the movie, which was received well, and submitted handsome offers, but Warner Brothers, which stood to make 35 to $40 million on the tax write-down, wanted something in the ballpark of 75 to $80 million from a buyer. And what's more, they wouldn't allow the interested studios to counter Warner Brothers' offer. It was a take-it-or-leave-it situation, one that the other studios didn't even know they were entering into, insiders told The Wrap. The Wrap went on to claim that none of the major executives that were making these decisions had even seen the finished version of Coyote vs. Acme, and that David Zaslav had never seen any version of the film, and it was all pretty damning stuff. But a few days later, IndieWire published a follow-up article of their own that presented things from a slightly different angle. According to IndieWire's story, quote, a person with knowledge of the situation told IndieWire that Warner Brothers screened the film for a dozen distributors. Of these, 10 passed, the other two expressed interest in acquiring it, but for less than half of the movie's roughly $70 million production costs, the person said, all 12 knew the asking price when they agreed to view the film. This take on the situation makes it sound a lot less like Warner Brothers Discovery was conducting a blind auction for show with no real intention of accepting an offer, and makes it sound a lot more like other studios knew how much Warner Brothers Discovery wanted for the movie, lowballed them on their offers, and that WB Discovery basically turned them down because they could make more money on the write-down. I'm not saying I approve of what they're doing, I think it's actually a pretty heinous practice, but it sounds different in the second context than it did in the first. First. This is a very interesting situation as far as which side is accurate, or quite honestly, it's probably somewhere in the middle, and we'll talk about that in our last story in a few minutes. But what the end result seems to be is that it is now once again unlikely that Coyote vs. Acme is going to see the light of day. Maybe somebody will swoop in and offer the full price, or maybe Warner Brothers Discovery will decide that the PR headache isn't worth it and they'll sell it at the lower price. But it also seems to have attracted the attention of some lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Texas Democratic Representative Joaquin Castro wrote on social media, quote, I've spoken and written to the DOJ, Department of Justice, and the FTC, Federal Trade Commission about this disturbing, growing trend in the entertainment industry. It's anti-competitive, anti-worker, and predatory. Regulators should review a corporation's use of this tactic in evaluating whether to sue to block future mergers. And wouldn't this be an interesting turn if the concept of taking content away from consumers for tax write-down purposes actually spurred some sort of congressional oversight as to whether these media companies are getting too big or whether mergers like potentially Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount Global, for example, could even happen. Now, will this actually bear any fruit? I don't know. Lawmakers say a lot of things and very little actually gets done in Washington, but people are starting to pay attention to what is happening here. And the idea of, oh, I'm just trying to save money only goes so far. It seems even with the people that are in charge of regulating the industry. So while there are some stories like Paramount 
Paramount Globals that may be in the end stages, there are other stories like this one that seem to be in the early or middle stages as this industry tries to figure out just what the hell it is after all of these huge changes. We have one more story, which is a follow-up to something we talked about a couple weeks ago. But first, I want to take your calls here on the Mint Mobile hotline. We've got a few great questions today. And our first one is from Alex, just down the road from Warner Brothers in Burbank, California. Hi, Dan. My name is Alex from Burbank. I had a question about the timing of the Fantastic Forecast announcement. They announced it the same day that Madam Web opens. And I know Madam Web was from Sony Marvel and Fantastic Four from Disney Marvel. So they could either have announced it to compete with them or they could have announced it because they knew the Madam Web buzz was bad. Was any of this strategic or was it just a coincidence? Hey, Alex, thanks for that question. And listen, I love a good conspiracy theory. Uh, but as to whether the announcing of the Fantastic Forecast on February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, had to do with trying to either sabotage or distract Madam Web, I don't really think so. I mean, it's been pretty well established that Sony and Marvel, Disney Marvel, really only work together on Spider-Man, and I don't really see the studio timing a major announcement like Fantastic Four's to undermine a movie that it was pretty clear really didn't need to be undermined anyway. Plus, these things take so much time. You know, there was the custom artwork that they put together with Happy Valentine's Day. We're really only about a year and a half out from the release of the film, so you did have to announce this cast soon because they have to, you know, shoot the movie. So no, I don't think there's anything malicious or intentional about the timing as regards Madam Web. I think that Marvel just saw a chance to do something kind of fun and kind of cute with Valentine's Day with this family portrait. That cast, by the way, I think is a pretty solid cast. Pedro Pascal, Vanessa Kirby, Evan Moss Backrack, and Joseph Quinn. Also, in case you missed the date change, Fantastic Four is now pushed back to July of next summer, with Thunderbolts now moving up to May, basically kicking off the summer box office. So I'm sure that there will be a lot more Fantastic Four news in the future. And who knows, if there's another Sony hack or a Sony leak, maybe we will see some accusations of sabotage. But here I would just talk it up to two different movies, one releasing on Valentine's Day and another one using Valentine's Day in order to just do something kind of fun. Our next question is from Andres in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Dan. This is Andres from uh, Atlanta, Georgia. How did you get your start as a movie critic? That side of things is something that's becoming very interesting to me. And I was just curious, how did you get your start? Hey, Andres, thanks for that question. For people that weren't kind of following my journey, it, it has been a very circuitous journey as far as actually being able to review movies consistently on the internet. I started at Screen Junkies as an editor, never thought that I would be on camera. Then we started doing movie fights, and I was basically there just for movie fights. And really, it was the launch of Screen Junkies Plus, which was our failed streaming service. But I think the first streaming service to actually have a plus at the end of the name, so you know, at least we've got that. We expanded our programming massively Massively when we launched that streaming service, which gave me the opportunity to do standalone movie reviews on my own. It's something that we really didn't do on the Screen Junkies channel. We just had one channel at the time. Of course, Screen Junkies Plus wasn't around that long, but at the same time, we took over Clever News and made that into Screen Junkies News, which became a channel on YouTube that would allow for standalone movie reviews. So I started doing them there alongside Roth Cornette, as many of you saw. Uh, she would do some solo ones. I would do some solo ones. And that's really what got me my start as a critic professionally. Now, I will tell you that I was reviewing movies as far back as the sixth grade school TV station. I reviewed 
reviewed movies back then. I reviewed movies in high school for our high school public access channel. I wrote movie reviews for the college newspaper. So reviewing films is something that I've always had an interest in. Never thought I'd get a chance to do it professionally. And that's why I always say, if you have a job that's interesting to you, or if you have a job that's in a field around the field that you like, give it a shot. Take that job because you never quite know where it's going to lead you. Our final question comes from Jonathan from Las Vegas, Nevada, and he's actually asking about my original profession before I started doing stuff on air. Hi, Dan. Jonathan from Las Vegas here. Love your videos. Watch them daily. Working in video production myself, I've come to learn the importance of good editing. Why don't you think editors get more recognition for their contributions to cinema? And do you have any favorite editors or favorite edited movies when you think of great editing? Mine would be Michael Kahn for Munich and Lee Smith for Inception. Thanks for everything that you do. Love your work. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And I agree, obviously, because I'm an editor by trade and by heart. I edit everything you see here on the channel. That editing is immensely important. I think that you can't make a great movie in an editing room. If you don't have great pieces, an editor can't invent a great movie from nothing. But a bad editor can definitely ruin a great movie. When you're making a movie, you're basically putting a puzzle together and the editor is the one that's actually taking all of these pieces and assembling them into a picture, a pretty picture for people to watch. As far as why they don't get more credit for what they're doing, I think it's because it's honestly something that people don't think of. If a movie is edited well, then people just think of it as the movie. They don't think of it as the art and the process of putting together the different shots. When they're watching a scene, most people aren't thinking about how it's edited because hopefully the editor's doing their job, the actors have done their job, the directors, the cinematographer, everybody's done their job and people are absorbed into the reality of that scene. You're not outside of it. And the way that you are when you see a great performance, you can go, oh my God, that's an amazing performance. It's less common with editing because at its best, editing should be invisible. As far as my favorite edited movies, I mean, I could sit here all day and give you ones that I love just from the editing standpoint. Just a few of my favorites, of course, Verna Fields, who edited Jaws, which is my favorite movie of all time. Sally Menke, who worked with Quentin Tarantino and particularly her work on Inglorious Bastards, which was sadly her last film with Quentin Tarantino. Uh, William Reynolds and Peter Zinner, who were the editors on The Godfather. Patrick Kennedy, who edited the film Airplane, Comedy is so reliant on editing, and that movie is so well edited. Tom Cross, who edited lots of Damien Chazelle movies, but particularly his work on Whiplash. And then Thelma Schoonmaker, just in general. I mean, she's Martin Scorsese's editor. She's done so many incredible films. I think she's one of the most impactful editors, if not the most, of the 20th and going into the 21st century. Thanks for that question, Jonathan. I always love to talk editing here and anywhere, really, on the street corner. It doesn't really matter. And thanks to everybody that called in on the Mint Mobile hotline. If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your question at plus one, three, two, three, eight, six, three, 3311. And of course, I want to thank the ones who make the Mint Mobile hotline possible, Mint Mobile. Here on the channel, I talk about the box office, which is all about money, and I review movies to help you decide where to spend your money, but Mint Mobile is all about saving you money, because right now, wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just 15 bucks a month. Hey, that's better than pretty much any movie we've seen in 2024 so far. 
I want you to imagine your wireless bill right now. Now imagine how much you'd save if it was just $15 a month. I bet that would save you enough money to see Madam Web in theaters multiple times with a large popcorn bucket to catch your salty tears and a soda to drown your sorrows. At Mint, you can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to that monthly phone bill. Plus, Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or a family, and at Mint, families start at just two lines. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash Merle. That's mintmobile.com slash Merle. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Merle. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So I'm going to close out the show revisiting a story that we talked about, I believe, on the last episode, which was some drama surrounding the upcoming Amazon streaming release Roadhouse, which is a remake of the Patrick Swayze film. This one stars Jake Gyllenhaal. And we talked on the last episode about an open letter that was written by the director, Doug Lyman, basically excoriating Amazon and MGM for not giving the film a theatrical release. Lyman's letter read in part, quote, Amazon asked me and the film community to trust them and their public statements about supporting cinemas, and then they turned around and are using Roadhouse to sell plumbing fixtures. And what it all really boiled down to is that Lyman said he was misled and lied to about the potential for Roadhouse to be released in theaters and is going to boycott the big South by Southwest premiere of the film. Well, Variety ran a report on the situation this week that tells a slightly different story. Roadhouse was initially set up at MGM under Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi, who then left to run Warner Brothers. And according to the Variety report, quote, Amazon Studios chief Jennifer Salke quickly salvaged Roadhouse and was poised to greenlight the film with a cast that also included Billy Magnuson, Daniela Melchior, and Lucas Gage. Sources familiar with the negotiations say the filmmakers and Hall were given a choice. Make the film for $60 million and get a theatrical release or take $85 million and go streaming only. They opted for the latter. And this is a very interesting side to the story because it's not something that might have been lost in the subtleties like the Coyote versus Acme story. This makes it appear that one side is definitely being misleading about what actually happened because Variety's report makes it sound like not only was Doug Lyman aware that Roadhouse was going to be a streaming release. He and Jake Gyllenhaal and other key producers agreed to it ahead of time and took more money for it to be streaming. And some people might say, well, wait a minute. If it was streaming only, why was Amazon going to give them more money? Well, that's because they usually compensate directors and actors more on the front end if a movie's not going to get a theatrical release because they're not going to have things like profit participation if the movie does well. So it's essentially saying, okay, if you don't go theatrical, we're going to pay you more now to compensate for what the movie might have made if it had been put out in theaters, or you can take less money now and bank on the possibility that the movie will do well enough in theaters that you'll get paid these back-end points. Where does the truth lie here? Is it Doug Lyman's side? Is it Variety's side? Were the filmmakers misled? Or did they take more money and want that theatrical release anyway? We don't know because we weren't there in the negotiations, but I think that this is just another example with entertainment media and really with any media 
that whenever an initial report comes out, I'm not saying that you should disbelieve everything that you read, but never close yourself off to the idea that there could be more to the story. And I think that this is what media should be doing. Outlets should be reading stories that other outlets put out and then fact-checking those stories and going back to the sources and saying, hey, this report said that. Is that what actually happened? And if there is some kind of a discrepancy, then those outlets should be reporting on that discrepancy. That is how you get to the truth. You read and then you follow up. You don't just follow a headline and not do any research or any kind of reporting on it. And much like with the Coyote versus Acme thing, it's not that I agree with the fact that Roadhouse shouldn't get a theatrical release. If you know me, you know that I am 100% behind the theatrical model and that I absolutely detest the idea of deleting a movie in order to take a tax write down. This is so much more about the media itself and not about what I think about these particular stories. Ultimately, what we as consumers and what we as just citizens should want our media outlets that are there with the goal to tell us the truth, to find the truth of every situation. And progressively, that's not what's happened because media outlets themselves have been dismantled, much like the entertainment industry has. And it's very much more now about the clickbait headlines, the search for truth. And I don't want to sound too much like, I don't know, Superman here, uh, but the search for truth is what we should all want. So where the truth lies on any of these stories, I don't know. As I report stories here, if there is follow-up reporting, then I'm going to try to bring it to you because I'd love to know what the truth of it is. And yeah, it's maybe a little bit more boring than the big outrageous clicky headline, but I think it's more useful. It's more useful to find out what's actually going on. And that's what I'm going to try to keep doing here on the channel. Thanks so much for watching this episode of the News with Dan, and we actually have a very busy week coming up, so I'm going to have a recap of the BAFTA Awards, which are happening today. That'll be on the channel tomorrow. Then we're going to have Charts with Dan on Tuesday. I'm going to have my review of Dune Part 2 on Wednesday. Then on Friday, I'm going to have my review of the first season of Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. On Saturday, I'm going to bring you my thoughts on Demon Slayer, the first episode of Season 4, which is going to be showing in theaters this upcoming week. And then on Sunday, I'll have my recap of the Screen Actors Guild Awards, which are happening next weekend. Of course, this is all subject to change if there should be some big schedule interruption, etc. But I have a lot of stuff planned for the next week, and I hope that you'll join me right here on the channel to talk about all of it. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. Until next time, stay safe, and I'll see you then. Bye.